continue to look at uh, 1 Corinthians, life in the local church. And this week, week four, um, we're looking at the wisdom of the gospel. <clears throat> but before we do that, I have to have that quiz. The Corinthians were viewing the gospel as a form of Greek wisdom. True, true. True, true. And so, there's a great parallel, you know, in the world we live in today. That is, people, a lot of preachers on TV, uh, a lot of so-called Christians, look at the gospel as some sort of self-help, some sort of thing. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and... uh, if you just follow these prescriptions, you'll be healthy and wealthy and wise and so forth. It's just, it's just a great philosophy of life and so forth. It's not necessarily true. You may become a Christian and have more troubles than you had before. If you get saved and your spouse is unsaved, you may have more trouble than you had before you were saved, you know. You may come under persecution if you get saved and your boss doesn't like now that you're a Christian. Things can be tougher. God doesn't promise that things will be better. They'll be better spiritually. We'll know God. We have eternal life. We know God is in control and he's working things out for his good, for our our good and his glory. But still, it's not uh, as it's often portrayed. So the Corinthians had a form of that. Uh, so we call it over-realized eschatology. They thought that they had all the blessings of the future now. Then the message of the cross naturally appeals to the wisest people. <coughs> not really, according to what Paul says, right? No, that's not true. Um, and we'll see that especially when we get to verse 14 today. It really brings that home. Three Jews were generally looking for a crucified Messiah. <laughs> no, that's false too, wasn't That wasn't their normal outlook. Um, they seemed to not have a... Uh, they, had, they had a question about Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Even today, if you talk to Jews, you'll, you'll notice that uh, they, don't, they don't mention much about Isaiah 53. They don't discuss it. Uh, they look upon it as Israel. Israel is the is the suffering servant and not the Messiah and things like that. Um, Paul was not particularly filled with confidence when he came to Corinth. That's true. true. Remember, he said he was fear and trembling and so forth. It was a difficult thing to come to Corinth. And then five, the foolish things of the world are the Corinthian believers. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, never mind. Remember, he uses the neuter things, you know. Uh, even though he's talking about people. He says, as far as the world is concerned, you're considered foolish. I mean, a lot of people out there would consider us foolish. We're kind of wasting our time here today. We could be out doing something, spending our time much wiser than what we're doing here today. So, let's look at our outline. We're looking at the first major division in Corinthians, which is chapter 1 through chapter 4 primarily. And this deals with the problem of divisions, different differences of opinion in the church, some squabbles. And these divisions are both internally, that is, they're having differences among themselves, and they also have some problems with Paul himself and what he's teaching and so forth. And the 
First thing we notice is the problem, the division over leaders in the name of wisdom. We looked at that, 1, 10 through 17. He describes the problem there, and he says You're, that this division works itself out because they're rallying around certain leaders. I'm following Paul. I'm following Apollos. I'm following Cephas. I'm following Christ. They're, they're sort of looking to certain leaders and so forth. And we're on the section now where Paul is discussing the reasons for the problems, 118 through 421. And we're at the section 118 through 34, and Paul says uh, there's a couple of reasons for this problem. And one of the reasons is you misunderstand the nature of the gospel message. It's not some sort of Greek philosophy that makes you better and healthier and wiser and all that kind of thing. It's not that at all. You've misunderstood it. And so the first thing we noticed he talked about last time, he says, you have misunderstood it so bad because there's a sense in which the gospel is foolishness. The gospel, there's a sense in which it is foolishness. As far as the unsaved world is concerned, they look upon the gospel as foolishness. This is, he talks about the Jews, uh, this problem of a crucified Messiah is a real problem. They're looking for a glorious Messiah to come back to rule and reign as the Old Testament prophecies did. So, so Jesus doesn't fit that mold. That's a real problem for them. They stumble at Jesus and so forth. And he talks about the Gentiles or Greeks. They think this is foolishness because we're talking about someone who was crucified, someone who was put to death as a state criminal. Uh, by the Romans, what kind of person could that be? You know, we, that's not that's not a person you want to follow. Somebody who got executed as a criminal—that's that's the savior of the world. That's that's that just sounds foolish. That's nonsense. Who would follow a religion like that? You know, that's not that's just nonsense and that's foolish. So Paul says there is a sense in which the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness when you look at the message of this crucified Messiah, that is, the world looks upon that as foolish. It's foolish when you look at the people who receive it because it's not the, the high and the mighty, the most intellectual, the most intelligent. It's not the most powerful. It's not the people in Washington, D.C. It's not the people on Wall Street. You know, you don't, you know, the, <laughs> those people are not rushing into churches up there, really. And he says it's foolish when you look at the, the person who preached it, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I don't fit the pattern that you're looking for. I'm, I'm not like Joel Osteen, you know. I'm not Joel Osteen. And uh, that's exactly, Joel is exactly what Paul is describing is wrong there. Uh, uh, the kind of people they were looking for was well-dressed, good-looking, great speaker, uh, charismatic, that kind of thing. And Paul says, I'm really not any of those things. And that was really on purpose, Paul says. Because I want your faith not to stand because you put your faith in some person, some personality. Follow the person. I've seen that. I've seen that even in churches. I remember the church where I was saved, the pastor was a very, was a very uh, capable person. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it. He reminds me of Ken a lot. <laughs> he reminds me of Ken and said he was a nice-looking guy. Ken is charismatic. Don't tell him if I said anything about it. But Ken has tremendous gifts and talents. He's a, he's a person. Don't you think Ken is a person people will naturally follow mm -hmm. and so forth? That kind of thing. 
Uh, and that's a good thing. And I'm not saying Ken abuses that or anything. It's a wonderful thing that you have those characteristics that you use for the Lord and so forth. The pastor of the church where I was saved, he was like that. He was a nice-looking fella. He could sing. <clears throat> he, he, you know, and he was charismatic. And he loved the Lord. He was a very dedicated guy, just tremendously dedicated. But unfortunately, in that church, the people were just in love with him. They were just... And so he left that church. And when he left that church, the church fell apart. Just like that. Because it wasn't his fault. You know, he, he didn't he didn't really try to engender that. He wasn't trying to make people worship him or anything like that. But that's a danger in churches that people can uh, follow a person too much. You know, we there is an obedience, there is a submission we owe to our leaders and so forth. We want to follow them, we want to listen to them, we want to be taught. But at the same time, we're ultimately following Jesus. You know, and that's and so when that when this fellow left. Uh, the church just fell apart, <laughs> just disintegrated. The people couldn't get over the fact. They just, they were just in love with this guy. And in many sense, that was wonderful. That was good. They appreciated him. They loved him. But they, they just couldn't separate that from the Lord, in a sense, you know. So Paul says, I don't want your faith to stand in a person. I don't want you to be, you know, tied up with just one person like me or anything like that. I want your faith to be in the Lord. Well, in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul makes a turn in the argument. Remember, we said the term wisdom is not a term that Paul would normally use to describe the gospel. The gospel is not a kind of wisdom, is it? We wouldn't normally use that term. But that's their term. But Paul now makes a turn and says in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, that there's a sense in which the gospel is wisdom. In fact, you might say, I agree with that. God's plan of salvation seems pretty wise to me. It seems like a very wise plan. So he's going to say there is a sense in which it's wisdom, and it's wisdom revealed by the Spirit here in 2, 6 through 16. I say up until this point in Paul's argument, Paul has had a very negative view of wisdom. That is because he is arguing against a Corinthian attitude toward it that has placed him and his gospel in a less than favorable light. He now makes a turn in the argument in order to reassert that the gospel he preaches is really wisdom, the wisdom of God. But it cannot be perceived as such by those who are pursuing wisdom, that is, this wisdom of the world. It's recognized only by those who have the Spirit, because the Corinthians do have the Spirit, and thus the mind of Christ. They should have seen the cross for what it is, God's wisdom. By pursuing wisdom... That is human wisdom, earthly wisdom. They are acting just like those without the spirit, the unsaved, who are also pursuing wisdom but see the cross as foolishness. So he says in verse 6, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I say here, despite the insistence that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, so the Corinthians' faith might not rest on human wisdom, Paul says, we nevertheless do speak of wisdom, speak a message of wisdom. Now Paul shifts to the plural here, I mentioned here, and in verse 7 and verse 13, this is an example of 
what we often, what's called a literary plural. Um, we saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 23. And so when I say this, I want you to remember that even though Paul says, however we speak a message of wisdom, he's not talking about you and I, he's talking about himself primarily. As I say, he may include other apostolic men. So this is, uh, this is a we that doesn't include us. It includes Paul, maybe others. Now, it's hard for us to understand this literary we, I think, because we don't use it much in our language and so forth. Um, that is, have you ever been around somebody who refers to themselves as we? Have you ever been around a person like that? I don't know if you ever have or not. The Queen of England does. <laughs> she never says I. She says we. We, 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 we do this, we do that. When I was uh, growing up, I got involved in, in radio and electronics and ham radio. I'm a ham radio operator, if you know what that is, amateur radio operator. But when I was first getting on, I noticed when I got on and listened to these people, they would use the we. They say, we put up our antenna and we, and I said, well, who, who says we, you know? <laughs> For some reason, they had this habit back then of using the sort of a literary we. Some call it an editorial we or a we, but they really meant I. And I couldn't figure, what's this we about? You know, who's this we? Who, is, it, is it a man and his wife? Is it two, you know, no. They just, it was just a, a convention to do that kind of thing. In the ancient world, it was very common to speak as we when you're writing. Uh, and we see Paul doing it here. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three. he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. When he's talking about himself. He says, I'm preaching Christ crucified. He's talking to the Corinthians. He's talking about his preaching. Now, he does this throughout Corinthians. Here's an example in 2 Corinthians. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. He's not talking about himself and somebody else. He's talking about Paul. I'm writing to you. But he says we. For we do not write anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that. See, now he switches back to the singular. <laughs> and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. It sounds strange like he's talking about he and his companions, but he's not primarily. It's just what we call the literary we, and it's throughout Paul's epistles a number of times. And so here I want to emphasize, he's just saying, we speak a message of wisdom. That is, I am speaking, and we'll see this again shortly in a couple of other verses, but not the wisdom of this age are the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I say, when Paul says he doesn't speak wisdom, by wisdom he does not refer to what is, he does not refer to what is fascinating the Corinthians when he says we speak wisdom. It's not what's fascinating the Corinthians. Wisdom that belongs strictly to this age and is the rulers who are coming to nothing. Instead, Paul has already declared we preach Christ crucified. Remember, a stumbling block to Jews. Uh, and to the Gentiles, but to those who God has called both Jews and Greek Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> so Paul says, my message is a message of wisdom among the mature. <clears throat> now, I say here, it's only the mature who are able to recognize the wisdom in the gospel or the gospel as wisdom. Paul says, there is, there is a sense in which we can say the gospel is wisdom. It seems very wise. He says it's to the mature. We might be inclined to think that Paul is referring to spiritually mature Christians. That is, we might think this as we read this, that, okay, Paul is saying 
that some Christians can't understand this wisdom, but there is an elite class of mature Christians. <coughs> so Paul would be saying only the mature spiritual Christians can see the wisdom of the gospel. However, such a view would run counter to Paul's whole argument and destroy everything he said in 118 through 25. By admitting that the gospel has secret truths available only to a few. But Paul does not have a different gospel for different classes of Christians. Those who regard Paul's message as foolishness were not immature Christians, but the unsaved. The contrast in the passage are between the called and the unsaved, not between classes of Christians. Paul will go on to argue that the reason some do not see the wisdom in the gospel is because they lack the Holy Spirit and thus are unsaved, not because they are immature Christians. But if, but if mature refers to all Christians, why does Paul use such a potentially confusing term, terminology like this? Because most likely the terminology is the Corinthians terminology. Confusing for us, but not for them. In their rejection of Paul, they think he is treating them like babes feeding them only with milk while they perceive themselves to have advanced to maturity. Those in Christ are mature and thus the Corinthians are included. Um, so, remember they think of themselves as already arrived. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. You know, remember, that's irony. He's ridiculing them. They think they're, oh, we're these super mature people and all that kind of thing. So they use that. But I say here, those in Christ are the mature and thus the Corinthians are included. The Greek word for mature, teleos here, indicates someone who is complete. All Christians are complete in the sense that they have been given at the time of their salvation all they need to live the Christian life. Remember, uh, Pastor Ken put that verse up, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So when we become Christians, God gives us everything at that time that we need for life and godliness. We don't need another experience. We don't need a baptism with the Spirit and some other special experience later on or something that we have to get. We have everything, potentially everything we need. Now we have to grow. We have to mature. We have to understand God's Word and so forth. But we don't need any new experiences. So all Christians are complete in the sense they have all this. But the Corinthians' behavior indicates they're acting like infants. Paul's concern is to persuade them to adopt the thinking that goes along with being, quote, mature. That is, with having all this, having the Holy Spirit, having everything you need, adopt that kind of attitude. The wisdom of which Paul is now speaking is of a radically different kind from that which the Corinthians are pursuing, which is of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So the rulers of this age represent the people of this world who reject the wisdom of God in the gospel. And they stand in contrast to those who were saved, those who were destined for glory. Verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
I say here, verse 7 explains the nature of God's wisdom that made it impossible for the wise of this age to grasp it. First, it's a mystery. Now, the word mystery here, the Greek word mystery, mysterion, refers to something that was hidden in the past in God from all human eyes. It couldn't be understood until God revealed it. It's a mystery, but now it's being revealed in history through Christ and made understandable to us, to his people, through the Spirit. Second, God's wisdom, salvation through a crucified Messiah, has been hidden. This phrase here, before time began, indicates that it's been hidden from eternity until such a time as now, with the coming of Christ, the cross, the God preaching of the gospel has now been revealed. Third, God's wisdom, long hidden and still hidden to some, was destined by God himself for our glory before time began. What has been predestined technically is God's wisdom. The larger context indicates that Paul has in view God's gracious activity in Christ, whereby through the crucifixion he determined eternal salvation for his people, including especially the Corinthian believers. So just as God chose the foolish and weak for salvation and therefore shamed the wise and powerful because they missed it, the wise and powerful are looking. They're searching, but they're searching the wrong things and doing the wrong things. They're missing the gospel. So they're going to be brought to nothing. Now Paul repeats that God predestined, he says, the rulers, he predestined his people for glory, not shame. And as, and, and as done so in contrast, he says, to the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now, verse 8 here repeats the failure of these rulers, I say, in terms of their responsibility for the crucifixion. God's wisdom is something that none of the rulers of this age understood. The reason for the ruler's failure is that it was hidden in God. It could only be grasped by the revelation that comes from the Spirit, as we'll see in verse 10. So what they didn't understand was the true, the, the nature of true wisdom. God's wisdom as spelled out in 118 through 25 in the gospel, in the coming of Christ, which stands in contradiction to human understanding, human pursuit of wisdom. So they were ignorant. They didn't understand this truth in the gospel. And therefore they crucified. <laughs> they crucified Jesus as a messianic pretender, didn't they? I mean, how wrong can you be, right? I mean, here's God coming to flesh, and you miss it. And you crucify him as a messianic pretender. So, they didn't recognize the Lord of glory. Here is God come in human flesh, and you didn't recognize him. And so, that's what human wisdom does. That's where human wisdom takes you, you see. Apart from the revelation that comes through the Spirit is you, you pursue the wrong path and you turn away from God like these people did. And the irony of this is the Corinthians are being fascinated by this kind of thing. See, Here they are, they're, they've been saved, they have the Spirit, but somehow they're fascinated with this Greek philosophical wisdom. With this, they're, they're fascinated with things beyond the gospel. And that can happen to Christians. You know, they can get, get sideways, they can... They can uh, say, this is not enough, you know, the Bible is not quite enough, and what I'm being taught is not quite enough, there's a new way, there's other things, 
uh, there's new messages and so forth. It's, it's easy to get sidetracked here. Verse 9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen what no ear has heard. Excuse me. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul concludes the argument to this point with the scriptural support. Now, it's not clear exactly the Old Testament text. He's citing their parallels here to Isaiah 64.4, Isaiah 65.16, but he's taking the thoughts of those verses and saying that the rulers of this age did not understand, but it's written what they did not understand, that is, no eye has seen, what no, her, no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, God has prepared for those who love him. That is, all Christians. So scripture, Paul says, supports the fact that people in this present age do not understand what God accomplished in Christ. They don't get it. Verse 10. These are things God has revealed to us by his spirit. I mean, it's often funny. I've heard people say, I've heard preachers admit this, that they preached verse 9, you know. Nobody knows the things that God has prepared for those who love him. You know, I mean, this is wonderful. God has prepared heaven. And we don't know what God has prepared for us, you know. But they said, I failed to read verse 10. <laughs> verse 10 says, these are things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. We do know. <laughs> Whatever Paul's talking about in verse 9 is something that God has presently revealed to us. He says, but God has revealed to us. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their, their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul now explains how it is that those who love God understand his wisdom. It's because they have the Holy Spirit. They've been born again. They've been regenerated. The reason the Spirit can reveal these things is because he searches even the deep things of God. That is, he knows God fully and completely. So Paul says the key to understanding the wisdom in the gospel of seeing the truth, you know, seeing the truth. Maybe you were like that. Maybe somebody witnessed to you and showed you the gospel. And, uh, you know, this happens to most of us who are saved as adults. We Somebody showed us this. Eh, get that. Ah, oh, this is nonsense. This is only that, you know. Then all of a sudden, the light comes on, you know. God works in our hearts. We receive the Spirit. We're regenerated. And all of a sudden, yes, this, this, this makes sense now. I see the wisdom of what God is doing here. And Paul says the key to understanding this is the Holy Spirit who comes to us at the time of regenerated. And so Paul is basing his argument here on the principle that like is known by like. So on the human level, he says the Spirit or the mind of man knows what a man is thinking. For who knows what a person's thoughts are except their own spirit within them? So he's using an analogy here, just like uh, on the human level, the spirit or the mind knows what a person is thinking. So also only God's spirit, who is God, knows God. Humans on their own do not possess the ability to know God or God's wisdom. We're cut off from God. We're separated from God. Only like is known by like. Only God can know God. I say on the, I say in the notes here, the analogy between man and his spirit 
Uh, and God and his spirit is just that. It's an analogy. It's not a perfect thing here. God's spirit is a separate person. For this reason, Paul does not add the phrase within them. Notice that Paul says about man, for who knows a, a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? But notice what he says about God. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. He doesn't say who's in God because he's not, you know, he's a separate person. So it's just an analogy here. Verse 12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. So the Corinthians have received the spirit, therefore they should be able to see the wisdom in the gospel. The problem, as we'll learn later, is that they're carnal, they're fleshly, they're worldly. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, <clears throat> explaining spiritual realities with spiritual, Spirit-taught words. I say here, Paul now returns to his own preaching of God's wisdom, first mentioned in verse 6 and verse 7, and links it to the reception of the Spirit. Thus the we is literary, meaning I. This is what we speak. This is what I speak. I speak to you, Paul says, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual truths with spiritual taught words. So this is an important verse. <clears throat> it's probably, um, there's three major verses in the New Testament on inspiration of Scripture. This is one of them. The most important one, of the ones we know the best, is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. So this tells us about the product. Scripture, graphe, is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. But it doesn't tell us anything about the process. Inspiration is usually defined as God's superintending of human authors so that they wrote the Word of God. That's the Bill Combs simple definition. God's superintending of human authors so that they wrote the Word of God. Well, this just says, 2 Timothy 3.16, it gives us the product. All Scripture is, as a product, God-breathed and is useful for teaching. The King James member says, um, all scripture is given by inspiration. That phrase, given by inspiration, is translated here, God breathes. One Greek word, theonoustos, which means something like God breathed. All scripture is inspired, God breathed. Same same idea. There's 2 Peter one twenty one, which does seem to tell us a little bit about the process. It says... Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Now, we're not talking in this passage about prophecy in the sense of a prophet just getting up and speaking like Elijah or Elisha. We're talking about written prophecy. <clears throat> no prophecy of Scripture. We're talking about something written here. Prophecy of Scripture is always something written. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. This written prophecy... But prophets, through though humans, spoke from God and ultimately wrote it down as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's a little bit of the process, isn't it? God, the Holy Spirit, guided, I said superintended is the word that's commonly used, carried them along. And we see it here too, <coughs> 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul says, what I'm speaking is in words to you, Corinthians, and I'm writing to you, taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words. 
So Paul is saying that just as we have all received the Spirit so as to understand the gift of salvation, so also, he says, the message that I preach is given in Spirit-taught words. Verse 14. The person without the Spirit <clears throat> excuse me, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. I say with verses 14 through 16, Paul now picks up the negative side of this truth. Those who belong to this age are now called without the Spirit in contrast to those who are with the Spirit in verse 15. Um, Now, this, uh, this... phrase, the person without the spirit, is the Greek word psuchikos. So if you remember the King James, the natural man, remember that translation? The natural man receiveth not. The, the, the translation natural man is the Greek word psuchikos there. The, the Greek word suke means soul. So sometimes this is the idea of a soulish person. It's a person who just soulish, natural, the King James says, the natural man. Jude says, it is those, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, sukikos, sukikos, devoid of the spirit. So Jude kind of defines it for us there and says, these sukikos people, these natural people, these soulish people, they don't have the spirit. That's the contrast. They don't have the spirit. So that's why the NIV, I think, correctly here helps us here by saying the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. This word accept means to welcome. They don't welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. So I say Sukhikos refers to unsaved people, those without the Spirit, they are strictly people who know only the wisdom of this age. Those without the Spirit are described in three ways, each term, in, each in terms of their relationship or lack thereof to the Spirit. First, they don't accept, they don't welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God. Second, the reason for this not accepting, not welcoming, is that the things of the Spirit are foolishness to them. Because they have not received the Spirit, Their view of everything is from the bottom up and twisted and distorted. Third, they cannot understand the very things that the one who has received the Spirit can. Here the emphasis lies on their inability. Again, it's like is known by like. Without the Spirit, they lack the one essential quality necessary for them to know God and His ways because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Discern means to make appropriate judgments. They're discerned, they're appropriately adjudged only through the Spirit. So making judgments about God, what God is doing in the world, person without the Spirit obviously cannot do that. Now, sometimes I say, Paul's statement that the person without the Spirit, uh, without the Spirit, we've got man there, Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. So, 
you often hear the person without the Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. And that's interpreted to mean that the unsaved person cannot understand the gospel message or the Bible in general. So here's here's a pretty common thing. Well, it says right here, <laughs> the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They're foolishness and he can't understand them. So the unsaved person cannot understand the Bible. They can't understand anything about Scripture. But that's not what Paul is saying. The Bible, I say, is written in human language. In that sense, it's no different than any other book. All right? The Bible is no different than any other book in the sense it's written in human language. God created human language when he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He communicated with them in human language. The Bible is written in human language. It's no different than any other book in the languages. It's not written in some mysterious code or something like that. Now, it's it's a lot different than other books because it's revelation from God. It's content is what makes it different. But the language is human language. And human beings, including those who are unsaved, can understand human language. But there's something about the Bible, Paul says, that the unsaved person cannot understand. What is that? It can be helpful to distinguish between the bare grammatical meaning of a text of Scripture and the significance, application, or implication of that text. So, let's make a distinction here between meaning and significance. Meaning, what an author intends by his choice of particular words in a particular grammatical form in a particular context. This can only be discovered by historical, grammatical, theological interpretation. In other words, the meaning is the grammatical basic meaning. What does a text mean? You're reading my notes here. You're using just normal rules of interpretation to understand what I'm saying. You're not using some mysterious powers or anything like that. Because my notes are written in English, and if you understand the meaning of the words and so forth, you can understand what I'm saying. So there's the basic meaning, the grammatical bare meaning, and then there's what we might call the significance. It involves the application of the meaning of Scripture to an individual. For instance, anyone who is competent in English can understand the meaning of Paul's <coughs> declaration in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ died for our sins. That is, somebody can read 1 Corinthians 15.3. If they understand English, it says Christ, somebody named Christ, died for our sins. They can understand that that's what that says. But they don't see the importance of that, do they? They don't see the... An unsaved person doesn't see the significance of that. They can read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten... So they can... They may know that verse, but they're not saved. Because they, they can understand, okay, there's God, and he loved the world, and he gave his you know unique, special son... That can be understood. That's English. Anyone who is competent in English can understand Matthew 1.23. The virgin will conceive and give give birth to a son. I mean, if you're going to understand English, you can understand, okay, there's somebody, some virgin who's going to conceive and give birth to a son. But I say only a believer is certain to believe it. You know what I mean? There's plenty of people who believe that. There's plenty of preachers standing in pulpits today 
who understand what that means, but they don't believe it. <laughs> they deny it. They deny the virgin birth. Even though they know the scripture says that, they deny it, you see. So they don't see the significance. They don't see they don't they don't really grasp the full uh, meaning in that sense, the full understanding. Let me go on here and I'll just try to explain more. Paul is not denying that the unbeliever Paul is not denying that the unbeliever can understand the basic grammatical meaning of text, only that he will not be able to grasp how that meaning applies, the implications or significance of that meaning. The word understand suggests not primarily perceiving or intellectually comprehending in this context, but embracing things as they really are, grasping the truthfulness of them and recognizing them as fact. The problem is not primarily one of cognition, but of evaluation. To understand means to evaluate positively. So when he says, they cannot understand them, they can't experience them, they don't evaluate them positively, they don't see them as truthful. That the unsaved person does in fact understand the meaning of biblical truth is made clear by the words, considers them foolishness. The very fact that the unsaved person considers the Bible foolishness means they have to have some comprehension. Compare 3.19. Paul says in 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. God considers the wisdom of this world foolishness. Obviously, God does not consider the wisdom of this world to be foolishness because he lacks the ability to conceptualize, to comprehend the wisdom of this world. No, God fully comprehends the wisdom of this world and has judged and evaluated as being foolish. Likewise, the person without the Spirit can grasp the basic meaning of the biblical truth. That's why we give them tracts. That's why we show them the Bible. We try to take them and say, here's what the Bible says. But the problem is, if they don't have the Spirit, they say, ah, oh, that's just that's foolishness. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't believe that. So, likewise, the person without the Spirit can grasp the basic meaning, but can't correlate it. Instead, they twist it, they distort it, so that it appears foolishness to them. The implication of God's truth finds no receptive place in their heart, depraved heart. There's no positive response to God's truth by the unsaved person. So the unsaved person can get the basic grammatical meaning. They can read a Bible in English, and they can see what the words are and get the basic grammatical meaning and, and so forth. You know, they can read the Gospels and learn about Jesus and so forth. But it doesn't mean they're going to come to faith necessarily, does it? It takes the work of the Spirit so that they accept that's what they read as true and genuine, so they can correlate all those truths together. The person with the Spirit, Paul says, makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Verse 15a stands in contrast to the final word about the person without the Spirit in verse 14. The person with the Spirit can make judgments about all things, he says. Such a statement, of course, must not be wrested from his context. It's the Spirit who searches all things, even the depths of God. Therefore, the person who has the Spirit can discern God's ways, not necessarily all things, of course, but all the things that pertain to the work of salvation, matters formerly hidden in God, but now revealed through the Spirit. 
So those of us who are Christians, we can discern, we can make correct spiritual judgments. We can read the Bible and understand God and his ways about salvation. The person lacking the Spirit cannot discern what God is doing. The one with the Spirit is able to do so because of the Spirit. Therefore, the one without the Spirit cannot examine or make judgments on the person with the Spirit. The person who belongs to this age is not in a position to judge as foolish the person who belongs to this age. So he says, but a person who without the Spirit is not subject, uh, but a person, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Uh, it's someone once said, the profane person can understand holiness, but the holy person can well understand the depths of evil. <clears throat> That's what Paul is saying here. The profane person cannot understand holiness. Many of our unsafe, unsafe friends or unsafe relatives just don't guess. They just don't understand us. They, they just can't figure us out. But we get we figure them out. <laughs> As the saying says, the holy person can understand the depths of evil. I was there. I know what it's all about. I, got, I, I know where they're at. I got them. I got them figured out. But they can't figure me out. That's the problem. Because they lack the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Verse 16a gives the scriptural support for the assertion of 15b. It serves as a rhetorical question demanding the answer no one. Paul is thus asking those without the Spirit how they can expect to know true wisdom and thereby pass judgment on the one who has the Spirit when they do not have the mind of the Lord. In effect, Paul is saying, who's the person who wants to match wits with God? Verse 16b, Paul responds to his own rhetorical question in the first part of the verse, but in contrast to those who lack the Spirit and thereby do not have the mind of the Lord, we have the mind of Christ. So all Christians, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. That is, we have received the Spirit. We're able to think correctly about God. We can think God's thoughts after Him. And so since the Corinthians possess the Spirit, they should be able to see the wisdom in the Gospel. They should be able to understand what's going on, what Paul is preaching the problem is they're hindered by their carnality, by their sin. So you and I, even though we have the Spirit, even though we have the illumination of the Spirit, we're still hindered by, our, by what remaining sin there is. You know, as we go into sinful things and do sinful things, that hinders our understanding our, of the significance of Scripture. So sin is still a problem. Let's, uh, let's then summarize Paul's argument. Paul began by insisting that his message was in fact an expression of wisdom, God's wisdom, God's own wisdom, revealed as such by the Spirit. He, at least in contrast to the mere human being without the Spirit, understands the mind of Christ. And those who possess the Spirit, the Corinthians, are potentially also potentially possess the same mind. However, as he will now point out, they are hindered by their worldly, their carnal mindset. And so we come to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, on being spiritual and divided. The argument that began, began as a rebuke against quarrels and divisions looks like it may have gone astray in what has been happening from 117 to 216. However, the long discussion of wisdom and the cross is not a digression, but almost certainly the real issue. The wisdom that they are now pursuing strips the gospel of its real power. 
That's the problem. The wisdom that they are pursuing now strips the gospel of its real power. And at the same time, their pursuit of it has led to divisions. So that's always a problem. That's always something that can happen as, as Christians or people pursue the wisdom of the world. They turn from scriptures. Uh, it's going to be a real problem. I was just thinking about uh, this controversy uh, a few years ago. Back in 2013, the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church in the USA, there's various Presbyterian denominations. Uh, the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church, is the most liberal of the denominations. But they were they were going to produce a new hymnal back in 2013, and they wanted to use uh, Gettys and Townsend's In Christ Alone. It's a song we sing here, you know. And some of their churches had been singing that song. And you remember it has the words, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because the Bible teaches that he is the propitiation for our sins. That is, God's wrath against sin, my sin and your sin, was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And he was punished. So the cross is a penal substitution. He, Christ was our substitute. It's a penal substitute. He paid the penalty. Wrath was upon him. Well, <laughs> in the liberal circles of so-called Christianity, they don't like this idea of, of a wrathful God. God's a God of love. He loves everybody. We're all going to heaven, you know, no matter who we are. So they wanted to amend that song to saying, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They wanted to take out that idea of a penal substitution. Now, fortunately, the writers of the song said no. <laughs> Getty and Towns said no, you can't change their song, and so they didn't use their song in their hymnal. That's the wisdom of the world that we're talking about here. I say Paul has two concerns in this paragraph both noted in the title given to the section on being spiritual and divided. For Paul, these are mutually exclusive options. The problem is the Corinthians think of themselves as the one spiritual, while in fact they are the other, they're divided. Thus Paul does two things, which flow directly out of 2, 6 through 16 and lead to 3, 5 through 17. First, picking up the idea of people, be, of, of, of idea of being people with the Spirit, from what he's just preceded, Paul makes a frontal attack and pronounces the Corinthians as not acting like people with the Spirit. Indeed, they are just the opposite. They're worldly, still thinking like unsaved who do not have the Spirit. Paul's not suggesting classes of Christians or grades of spirituality, but wants them to stop thinking like people of this present age. Second, he wants them to stop behaving like people of this present age. Their behavior is that of unsaved people. Paul, of course, does not mean to say the Corinthians are unsaved. Now, there may be some out there, and he'll talk about that in 2 Corinthians, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you should act like saved people. Sometimes Christians don't act like saved people. We all know that. That because they have the Spirit, they should react in a certain way. They do have the Spirit, and that's the problem. They're thinking and behaving otherwise. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. 
I say here, Paul now proceeds to apply the argument of 2, 6 through 16 to the Corinthian situation. The use of the words brothers and sisters and the second person plural pronouns throughout make it clear that Paul is not addressing a faction within the church, within the congregation, but the whole church. Not all may be guilty, but all are defiled by this actions of the many. The past tense of the verbs indicate Paul is reflecting on the time of his initial visit. So he says, first of all, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit when I first came. There were problems when I first came to Corinth in Acts 18. I saw this problem. And they still have problems. Paul says that he could not address them as people who live by the Spirit. He doesn't say they do not have the Spirit, but they could not speak. He couldn't speak to them as spiritually mature. They're involved in a lot of unchristian behavior. In that sense, they're unspiritual because they, not because they like the Spirit, because they're thinking and living like worldly, fleshly, carnal people. Paul then continues his argument with new imagery. He calls them mere infants in Christ. They do have the Spirit, yet their thinking and behavior demonstrates that they're worldly or fleshly. And just as they think of themselves as spiritual, they think of themselves as full-grown, mature. But they consider Paul's teaching apparently like milk for babes. And by doing that, they show, Paul says, you're just really infants. You've abandoned the gospel for something that looks like solid food, but it's not solid food, this worldly wisdom. It has no nutritional value. I say the argument of 2, 6 through 16 implies that for Paul, the gospel of the crucified one is both milk and solid food. As milk, it is the good news of salvation. As solid food, it is understanding that the entire Christian life is based on the same reality. Thus, Corinthians do not need a change in diet, but a change in perspective. When a person gets saved, they get the gospel, they may read through the Gospel of John. There's there's no there's no secret books in the future that we when you when you're saved for ten years oh, we're going to give you these more advanced no there's nothing more advanced now there's a lot to learn about Christ and His death and His sacrifice and about God and about salvation there are depths to learn about that but it's the same truths Christ died on the cross for our sins it's the same gospel there's no secrets here. So Paul's point is that they are fascinated with this worldly wisdom and he says that's just foolishness on your part. It's worldliness. Verse 2b. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, and are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Paul now moves to the present situation as proof that they cannot even now understand the true nature of the gospel, as truly spiritual people should, he confronts them with their present jealousy and quarrelings. These are not the kind of activities of people who live by the Spirit. These are people who are living by the flesh. The sentence concludes with a rhetorical question that brings all this into perspective. For as much as there are, in fact, rivalry and quarrelings among you, is that not clear evidence that you're living from the point of view of the unsaved? Those who do not have the Spirit are mere humans. Thus, they consider the cross foolishness. At the same time, their behavior stems from a merely human, thoroughly self-centered point of view. The Corinthians have the Spirit, but are behaving precisely like people who do not, like human beings, mere humans. 3-4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not mere humans? Human beings? Paul brings the argument back to where it began in 110 through 12. 
Just as he noted in 1, 11 and 12, the Corinthian slogans specifically illustrate their quarrels and these are evidence that they're not, they are walking according to the flesh. So the problem is the Corinthians have misunderstood the gospel message. They're fascinated by this Greek philosophical wisdom. They're turning from the truth of the cross. This has led to all kinds of divisions and quarrels. Next time we'll see they have another problem, and that is they misunderstand the role of human leaders. Now, he's touched on this, but he's going to explain what is the role of human leaders in the church? What is their function? And he'll explain that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Give us understanding of these truths, and help us, Father, to be faithful to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.